Well, good evening. It's good to be here with you tonight. For those of you that I haven't met yet, my name is Clay Bass. My wife Savannah is over there in the back as well. We have one son who's eight months old named Gabriel. We're looking forward to serving here and roots with you all and getting to know you. Tonight we're going to be studying the book of Habakkuk. Do you ever wonder why there's so much evil in the world? Seems like whatever channel you turn on on the TV, it seems like there's more and more sin. Somebody's cursing, somebody's angry or committing acts of violence, somebody's making crass jokes, someone's committing sexual sin. It seems like we can't escape it, and the filth and the sin of our society, it just seems to get worse. The U.S. Department of Justice, I was reading some statistics this week, and they estimate that back in 2020 alone, there were over a million arrests in the U.S. for drug violence, over 300,000 arrests related to drunkenness and liquor laws. This one kind of took me aback. 12,000 people were arrested in the U.S. for manslaughter and murder. Seems like a lot. There were over 1.2 million assault arrests. Many others for things like prostitution, gambling, forgery. We often wonder why the Lord allows sin like this to run rampant on earth when we know, as Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. All of this is the Lord's, so why does he allow there to be so much sin? Tragically, as I and any of you who have been to other churches know, Often the Christians and the Christian culture is not very far behind as far as sinning, even brazenly and openly, as compared to the pagans of our society. We sometimes wonder when God is going to curb all this sin that's going on. Well, back when Habakkuk was prophesying, he found himself in a similar situation to us in that regard. God's people in Judah back at that time were committing all kinds of violent and contentious sins against each other. On top of that, there was injustice, and God's law was being completely disregarded. Even worse, there were wicked nations around Judah that were even more debauched and sinful and violent and proud than the Jews were. These pagans worshipped all kinds of idols, and they pillaged and they plundered everywhere they went. They were violent. They, they loved to get drunk. They loved to commit sexual sin. They had no regard for anyone but themselves. In the midst of all this sin, Habakkuk has to grapple with some of the most difficult existential questions that men will ever face. Through the trials that Habakkuk goes through when he writes, and even the incredible trials that the Lord reveals to him that are soon to come, Habakkuk continually sets his hope in the Lord. Like Habakkuk, all of God's people should live by faith in the Lord and humbly trust his sovereign plan for human history. But with all the wickedness we see in our world every day, we sometimes wonder, how is it possible for us to entrust ourselves to the Lord? How do, we, how do we put our faith in him when we see so much wickedness? The prophet Habakkuk gives us three prayers that we can emulate to have greater faith in the Lord. So let's study the book together. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Habakkuk. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, we're going to see a prayer for purification. A prayer for purification. Habakkuk 1 verse 1 says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. This book is going to record Habakkuk crying out to the Lord two different times, and we'll see the Lord responding to Habakkuk two different times in response to Habakkuk's prayers. It ends with a prayer that Habakkuk uttered to the Lord in praise in response to all that the Lord revealed to him. And we're not just reading some, in the book of Habakkuk, we're not reading some private journal entry, some prayer journal from some Christian that was really just beneficial to him and just showing the interactions he had with the Lord. No, in Habakkuk 2, 2, the Lord commands Habakkuk to write down the prophecy. This is beneficial for all of God's people. This message needs to be heard. Habakkuk notes in the final verse, in Habakkuk 3, verse 19, that his prayer was for the choir director, and so it may have been used for temple worship as a psalm to be sung. 
All of that to say, while this book is a discussion between God and a prophet several thousand years ago, it's incredibly valuable for God's people to help us understand God's ways and ultimately to worship him better. The theme of the book of Habakkuk is faith and doubt in the face of Judah's exile. We'll see that unfold as we study the book. The author is called Habakkuk the prophet in the first verse. There's really not a ton we know about this prophet outside of what's recorded in this book and what we can glean from the context of what was going on at that time. The name Habakkuk may mean embrace or one who embraces, which is fitting because we see Habakkuk learns some very difficult truths in this chapter, and yet at the end he clings to the Lord with all of his might despite his fearfulness about what's to come for his people in Judah. As a reminder of where we find ourselves in the course of redemptive history, God's people of Israel initially grew from the families of the patriarchs to a huge group of people, a nation, during their time in Egypt. God raised up Moses at the end of that time in Egypt to lead the Israelites on the exodus from Egypt after 430 years of slavery there. And after 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites entered Canaan as God had promised. Was the promised land, and they began establishing the nation of Israel. Years later, after the death of the wise king Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam acted very proudly when he took the throne. He took foolish counsel from his friends who told him to tell the people of Israel that he was going to be a very demanding and a harsh king. He was going to make their load even more difficult than Solomon had made it. The people were not pleased with that. Because of their displeasure at Rehoboam's arrogance and the way he answered them, all of Israel, aside from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, revolted. And we saw the split between the people of God, between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. That split occurred around 931 AD. If you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians in the late 700s B.C., So come the 600s BC, we're left only with the southern kingdom of Judah still intact. This is around the time where Habakkuk was prophesying. So with that background, let's read chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, and yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. In these verses, we see Habakkuk's inquiry. Why does God allow his people to sin? Why does God allow his people to sin? 2 Kings chapters 23 through 25 record the approximate time period around when Habakkuk would have prophesied. After the reign in Judah of the wicked king Manasseh, a righteous king named Josiah took the throne in Judah. And he ruled for 31 years. And partway through that rule, he instituted many reforms to help Judah be more obedient to the Lord. He rediscovered God's law. He tore down idol worship. Throughout Judah, he was a righteous king. After Josiah's death, briefly, for three months, there was the reign of the king Jehoahaz, but he was imprisoned by Pharaoh Necho, who then made Jehoiakim king. Jehoiakim was an evil king, like so many of his predecessors, and he ruled wickedly for 11 years. This was the king when Habakkuk was prophesying. During Jehoiakim's evil reign, he and apparently many in Judah were living wickedly and not in line with God's law. You see this in what Habakkuk's saying here in verses 2 through 4. So we see that by the time of Habakkuk, it seems as though the nation of Judah is ripe for a time of reckoning because of the way they'd broken God's law. So as Habakkuk begins his prayer to Yahweh, he's coming to God in desperation. He witnesses all kinds of sin from his king and sin running rampant among his countrymen. Violence, destruction, strife, contention, injustice, 
lawlessness among the Jews. They were being so wicked. He cries out to God and says, Lord, why do you let your people continue to live in such open sin? Clearly, Habakkuk's heart is grieved by the sin that he sees amongst God's people. So my question for you to make this a little more personal, are you grieved when you see your fellow believers sin? How do you react when you see your Christian friends at school or other students in roots committing sin? Do you hate to hear another student tell a sinful joke? Or do you laugh right along? Does it grieve you when another Christian uses God's name in vain, whether they misuse the term God or Lord, Yahweh, Jesus? Do you hate to hear those names of our Lord used flippantly or uselessly as part of a joke? Or do you continue on in conversation without a second thought? Does your heart mourn when you hear of your fellow students committing sexual sin? Or do you gossip and even commit some of those sins yourself in private? When you hear your friends getting in fights or speaking hatefully towards others, do you delight in that or do you hate that kind of verbal sin? Do you stand up for what is right and fair or do you go right along when people show partiality? Habakkuk lamented over the sins of God's people and we too should hate to see other believers, other professing Christians sin. Like Habakkuk, we should ultimately be praying that the Lord purges people from sin, that the Lord purifies people. As we come to verses 5 through 11, we see the response from the Lord, the response, which is that God's people will be chastened. Habakkuk has begged the Lord, God, please let this wickedness among the Jews stop. Lord, when is this going to end? We're supposed to be your witnesses and a blessing to all the nations. And yet here we are making a fool of ourselves and causing shame to be associated with your great and holy name. What's God's response? God says that he will not allow his people to continue in sin and break the covenant without being punished. Let's read beginning in verse 5 of Habakkuk chapter 1 and see what the Lord has to say. Habakkuk 1, beginning in verse 5. Look among the nations, the Lord says. Observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Look down at verse 9. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. Look at the end of verse 10. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Have you ever been absolutely shocked or completely surprised by something? Completely taken aback? I remember back when I was a teenager, some of you may be able to relate to this, when it came time for Christmas and opening gifts, all the teens and the adults would open their gifts and there wasn't a whole lot of shock and surprise and excitement going on. When the adults would open their gifts, you know, some would try to smile a little bit. Some would say, ah, cool. Others might say, awesome, thank you, I appreciate that. But then the children would open their gifts. A lot more shock was going on there. Some would spin in circles. Some would jump up and down. Some would squeal. Some would say, I already got this gift from somebody else. And everyone would cringe just a little bit and crawl under the table. But for the most part, the kids had so much shock and disbelief, they couldn't believe it. In Habakkuk's case, He was shocked. The Lord knew Habakkuk was going to be shocked. Obviously, this wasn't a shock of excitement. This was a shock that would strike fear in Habakkuk. The Lord said, you would not believe this if you were told. So what is it that the Lord reveals to Habakkuk that was going to be so shocking? Although Habakkuk could only see sin everywhere in Judah, it seemed as though the nation would never be purged of their sin. 
God had a plan. In verse 6, he says he is raising up the Chaldeans. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, Chaldea was a country in the Middle East region for several hundred years. And then Nabopolassar and his son Nebuchadnezzar, who you may be familiar with, they were of Chaldean descent, and they began to rule and took the throne in Babylon in the late 600s BC, right around when Habakkuk is prophesying. So you'll often hear Chaldea used synonymously with Babylon for a time. You're likely familiar with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon that we learn about in the book of Daniel, especially after the Jews are exiled to Babylon. That exile, that Babylonian exile where the Jews were taken to Babylon, that's what the Lord is foreshadowing here, the destruction that would come and the displacement to a foreign nation. Just for your references to the region we're talking about here, the Chaldean or Neo-Babylonian Empire eventually stretched across much of modern-day Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and some of Jordan and Turkey. So that's the region we're talking about here. In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 29, you may be familiar with it, we, we see the covenant between God and Israel where the Lord gave the law to the Israelites. What does God do when he gives them the law? He lays out the blessings on the one hand and the curses on the other associated with either keeping or breaking God's covenant. The Jews had so unrepentantly broken God's covenant that the Lord revealed to Habakkuk that he was soon going to use a foreign nation, the the Babylonians, excuse me, to punish the Jews. As we come to the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, we see Habakkuk's second prayer to the Lord, which is a prayer for justice. A prayer for justice. In chapter 1, verse 12 through the first verse of chapter 2, Habakkuk makes a second inquiry to God. He says, why do pagans prosper? Why do pagans prosper? In verse 12, Habakkuk acknowledges that God has appointed the Babylonians to correct and to judge the Jews. But look down at Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk says to the Lord, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk goes on to discuss the wickedness of the Babylonians in verses 14 through 16 and look down at verse 17 at the question he asked the Lord. Habakkuk says, will they, that being the Babylonians, will they therefore empty their net and just continually slay nations without sparing? Habakkuk says, in other words, Lord, I understand you've you've ordained that the Babylonians will be used to judge Judah. I know your people, we've... We've been very sinful, but Lord, they're worse than us. Habakkuk wonders, Lord, does this mean you're looking favorably on these wicked, plundering, immoral idolaters? Are they just going to continue to prosper and greedily feed upon other nations with no repercussions? Are you ever going to punish them? We see echoes here of Job's perplexities as well as many of the Psalms where God's people wonder why the wicked seem to prosper and do so well while believers are so often downtrodden and oppressed. Many of you may often wonder the same. Why does God allow the wicked to succeed in so many facets of life while his people go through so many trials? In chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Habakkuk eagerly awaits the Lord's response to this second inquiry. As we come to the rest of chapter 2, we see the response from the Lord. Unrepentant sinners will be punished. Unrepentant sinners will be punished. Habakkuk has asked the Lord why the Babylonians are prospering while the Jews are to be punished under the soles of Nebuchadnezzar's feet. In verses 2 and 3, the Lord makes it absolutely clear that judgment is certain for the Babylonians. 
judgment is certain. As we discussed earlier, God commands Habakkuk to write down this revelation that God gives to him. Look down at Habakkuk 2, verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It, it hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. This judgment on the wicked, it's set for a specific day and a specific hour. Although it may seem like the punishment for these plunders is taking its sweet time, Habakkuk, don't mistake the patience of the Lord, patience of the Lord with indifference towards sin. Don't you dare make that mistake. We would all do well to heed this reminder that the Lord's promise of a future reckoning will certainly come. As Habakkuk, as the Lord says to Habakkuk, it will not delay. After the Lord tells Habakkuk to write down the vision and reminds Habakkuk of its imminence, he goes on to proclaim five woes against the proud for the remainder of chapter 2. Woes against the proud. Look down at verse 4 of Habakkuk 2. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The condemnations for the remainder of chapter 2 are in response to the prophet's inquiry about the Babylonians, but keep in mind that the sins identified here through the rest of chapter 2 are roundly condemned throughout Scripture, and the Lord has harsh words for the Babylonians because of these sins. So it's prudent for us to hear God's judgments against these sins and take heed that none of us let these sins take hold in our own lives. But what is the overarching sin that characterizes the Babylonians? We see it here in verse 4. It's pride. They were characterized by pride, and that led to so many other sins. Sadly, we know the pride of this nation was not just amongst, you know, some of the middle management and a few of the low-level people in, in Babylon. No, this was a pride that started from the top. This was a pride that was personified by their leader. Do you remember what happened to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? Many years later, Daniel records in Daniel 4, beginning in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes." says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Habakkuk was proud, and he was punished. This is the kind of pride that characterized the Babylonians. So tell me, are you proud do you think of yourself as superior to other people, even other people here in Roots? Do you think you're superior to others because you're more handsome or you're prettier than someone else? Do you think you're superior because you're funnier or more outspoken? Maybe you have a more winsome personality than others, and that puffs you up a little bit. Do you think you're superior because you're more intelligent or more successful or come from a wealthier family? to the smug in this room, on the authority of God's word, as the Lord says in Habakkuk 2.4, as for the proud, their soul is not right within them. If you're proud, your soul is not right within you. The first sin in the list of the seven abominations that the Lord hates in Proverbs 6 is haughty eyes. 
The Chaldeans were proud. The Babylonians were proud due to their military conquests. And they thought themselves invincible and superior to everyone that they conquered. And they certainly saw no need to humble themselves before the Lord. May we never be like that. May we be a a people, may we be a college group that's characterized by humility before God and before men. That's my prayer for you and for me. But did you catch the contrast back in Habakkuk 2 verse 4? While the wicked are characterized by their pride, what distinguishes or characterizes or sets apart the righteous? What are their lives characterized by? They're characterized by faith. The Lord says the righteous will live by his faith. If you're wondering why that verse stands out as familiar to you, it's because this is a crucial verse that's used in three different New Testament epistles. Paul uses this text that the righteous will live by faith in the opening to Romans as he begins to lay out the gospel. He says in Romans 1.17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul says there that the gospel reveals how we can be made right with God, which is by the means of faith. We're made with, right with God through faith. And he cites Habakkuk 2.4 to show that God only views men as righteous if they're characterized by lives of faith, if they submit themselves to the Lord in faith. Elsewhere in Galatians 3.11, Paul says, Now that no one is justified before, By the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. In Galatians, Paul was confronting the Judaizers who were advocating for a different gospel that didn't properly hold the justification by faith alone. These people sought to add to the requirements of salvation. So Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 to prove that even under the old covenant, from beginning to end, all throughout redemptive history, Salvation was always received by faith, apart from works. There's a third usage of this text in the New Testament, Hebrews 10.38, which says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Paul's uses of this verse in Galatians and Romans highlight that men are justified by works as opposed to faith. But in Hebrews 10.38, the emphasis is on the need for enduring faith to avoid falling away due to willfully sinning and trampling underfoot the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures make clear from Habakkuk to Hebrews to Romans to Galatians, Genesis to Revelation, the righteous man lives by faith. May we humbly trust the Lord in all aspects of life, never allowing ourselves to be proud, but to live lives of faith. As we come to verse 6 of Habakkuk 2, God begins a harsh judgment on the proud Babylonians consisting of five woes. Each woe is tailored toward particular aspects of the sin that characterized the Babylonians. Verses 6 through 8 reveals a woe to the thieves. The Lord says, woe to the thieves. Look down at Habakkuk 2, verse 6. Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans. The Lord says the Babylonians have looted and shed blood of men and many nations, but that they themselves would one day face the same kinds of looting and thievery. He says that in verses 6 through 8. Verses 9 through 11 contain a similar condemnation as the Lord proclaims woe to the swindlers. He says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high. Woe to him who gets evil gain. The Lord calls their swindling gain at the expense of others shameful and even goes on in this section to personify the stolen building materials that the Babylonians had stolen from other nations and personifies those materials as lobbying lobbying accusations against the Babylonians, telling them how sinful they are for the thievery. Verses 12 through 14 again contain similar concepts to the previous two woes as the Lord proclaims woe to the violent. Woe to the violent. 
Look down at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Clearly the Lord hates this kind of violence, the bloodshed that characterized the Babylonians. These first three woes against the Chaldeans have to do with their extortion and exploitation of the nations that they had conquered. They plundered the countries that they defeated. They used theft and violence against their subjects to get rich and to force the peoples they conquered to build their cities and their buildings and their walls. They were thieves and they were violent. Each of us should hate this kind of injustice because God clearly hates it. We should never take advantage of people or use violence to achieve wealth as the Chaldeans did. We should never steal from others for our own evil gain. As we come to verses 15 through 17, we see the fourth of five woes, which is a woe to the drunkards. Woe to the drunkards. Look at verse 15. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. This fourth woe against the Chaldeans was proclaimed against their drunken debauchery, their immorality. They loved to get drunk and they loved to get others drunk. If you picked up on it in verse 15, the Lord makes it clear that they even use drunkenness as an excuse to make other people more uh, liable to commit sexual sin with them, make that a little bit easier. They were wicked. They loved this kind of drunkenness. Many of you are not old enough to legally drink alcohol in Texas. Some of you are. But regardless, nobody in this room, not me, not anybody, are permitted before the Lord to get drunk. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. You can't be filled with the Spirit and be drunk. Proverbs is also rife with condemnations of strong drink and drunkenness. You may be a teetotaler, or some of you who are of age may choose to partake in the occasional drink, but all of us need to be cautious and take heed that we never allow ourselves to be drunk and that we never allow ourselves to commit sexual immorality. Obviously, the Lord takes these things seriously and causes the drunkards and the immoral, as he says in verse 16, to be filled with disgrace. The final woe in verses 18 through 20 is a woe to the idolaters. Woe to the idolaters. Look down at verse 18. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, and to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Clearly, the Lord is condemning this kind of idolatry, this worship of false gods. The Chaldeans worshiped many false gods. They were idolaters. And it's pretty easy for any of us in this room to scoff just a little bit when we really think about that concept because at least my guess would be that most of you have zero temptation to go get a piece of wood and carve some ugly, overweight, wooden demigod and set it up in your room and pray to it to bring you rain for your crops. I'm assuming none of you have done that. But just for one example of how we can allow the sin of idolatry to permeate our own lives, do you allow yourselves to worship celebrities? That's just one way that this idolatry can manifest itself. Do you spend hours watching clips of and thinking about how wonderful various singers and movie stars or athletes are? Do you go to concerts or athletic events and clap and cheer and chant and become so immersed in those events that if a Babylonian showed up at that event, they would think that whatever was at the center of that 
that concert or whatever was your idol that was being worshipped? Do you spend more time thinking about these celebrities than you think about the Lord? Does your worship on Sunday morning in church look a whole lot more apathetic than your excitement at sporting events or concerts? That's a tough one. If so, you're worshiping idols and you need to check who your God really is. I had to wrestle with this myself as I was studying. John says in First John, John 5.21, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. That was the one thing John wanted his audience to be left with at the end of First John. Guard yourselves from idols. Well, as we conclude this second prayer that Habakkuk prays to the Lord, And the Lord's response, let's think back to Habakkuk's question. Why does God allow the wicked Chaldeans to be instruments used to chasten the Jews? What's the answer? What does the Lord say? Ultimately, as Deuteronomy 29.29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Ultimately, his wisdom determined that he would use the means of wicked heathens to discipline the Jews. But regardless of God's sovereign purpose, He makes it clear in chapter 2 that Habakkuk should absolutely not mistake God using the Chaldeans in this manner to mean that somehow their own sins would go unpunished. As we learn from history, Babylon was defeated by the Medo-Persians under the great King Cyrus in 539 BC, which we see a foreshadowing of even here in Habakkuk chapter 2. God's ways ultimately are not our ways, and he may allow the wicked to thrive here on earth. But ultimately, as we see in Exodus 34, 7, and Hebrews 9, 27, Matthew 25, 46, Revelation 20, all throughout scriptures, there is a coming judgment coming on all unbelievers. Anyone who doesn't repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ will be punished for every single sin they commit. And those who have faith in Jesus Christ will be vindicated due to the blood of Jesus and they will not be punished for their sins because that punishment will be on Christ. Any of you who have not repented of your sins against God and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection, know that a judgment is coming. Like the Babylonians, you may find yourself pretty comfortable right now Things may be going your way. You may have a good relationship going on. You may feel good about how school or your career are going. You may not see any immediate consequences to the sins you're committing, disregarding God's law. You may even think things are going better for you than your Christian peers. And externally, you may be right. But as we see in Habakkuk, God's judgment is undefeated. 2 Peter 3.9, though, says that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There is a coming judgment. God created you. He has a right to tell you what to do. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. So we're all guilty before the Lord. In Exodus 34, 7, the Lord says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Your only hope is to obey Jesus' command in Mark 1, 15, to repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My prayer that any of you who are still living in your sins would repent today. We've considered the first two prayers of Habakkuk to the Lord, and we've seen the Lord's responses. As we come to chapter 3, Habakkuk closes with a prayer to the Lord, offering up a prayer of praise. You see, a prayer of praise. Verse 1 begins, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. This is a prayer that we, like the Jews who would have sung this same prayer in temple worship, can benefit from understanding learning from and appreciating. In the opening verses to this chapter, we see the request that Habakkuk offers to the Lord. Lord, show your people mercy. Habakkuk cries out to God and prays that he would show his people mercy. 
Look down at Habakkuk 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. and the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Habakkuk's response to all that he's heard, all the Lord's dealings with both the Jews and the Babylonians, Habakkuk's response is to fear and to pray that the Lord would remember mercy amidst all the just wrath that he's built up due to their many sins. Like Habakkuk, do you fear the Lord? Do you read and meditate on his word enough to even truly have a respect for him and to know about his dealings? with mankind and truly have a healthy fear for him? There are many in our day who absolutely balk at the idea that people should fear God. People hate that thought. Well, Habakkuk was a prophet that was holy enough that the Lord chose to use him as a mouthpiece. He was a chosen instrument of God. He wrote a book of the Bible. This was a holy man, and he feared God. How much more should we? After Habakkuk prays to the Lord for mercy, in verses 3 through 15, he calls to mind the precedent that God has always been faithful. God has always been faithful. In this section of the prayer, Habakkuk recounts God's faithfulness to his people. He emphasizes God's holiness and splendor and power as well as the Lord powerfully vindicates his people. Throughout this section, Habakkuk brings back examples from the Exodus and from Sinai. For example, look down at Habakkuk 3, verse 3. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. This is a reference to God's deliverance of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt and into Canaan. Timon and Mount Paran are references to a city and mountain, excuse me, over in the Sinai Peninsula. So this is discussing the Lord's deliverance of his people, his powerful deliverance. Look down at verse 4 of Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk says, His radiance is like the sunlight, and he has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. This may be a reference to God's visible manifestation of his glory back in the pillars of cloud and fire during the time in the wilderness right after the exodus from Egypt and the Lord's power displayed through the pillars. Verse 5 says, Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. This again brings back images of the plagues that the Lord levied against the wicked Egyptians as the Lord powerfully protected his people. In verses 6 and 7, we see a picture of the fearfulness of all of those who hear of the Lord's mighty deeds, as the nomadic residents of Cushan and Midian tremble under distress, and nations are startled, and even the mountains and the hills are shaken. People are fearful when they hear about the Lord and about his power. In verse 10, we see another rex. Uh, reference, excuse me, to the Lord's power that brings to mind the Exodus. Look down at verse 10. Habakkuk says, The downpour of waters swept by, and the deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. This may hearken back to when the waters of the Red Sea split for the Israelites to walk across on dry land, and then it completely engulfed the Egyptians. The Lord is powerful, and he protects his people. Verse 11 hearkens back to Joshua chapter 10. Let's read Habakkuk 3 verse 11. Sun and moon stood in their places and they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. This hearkens back to Joshua 10 when the Lord caused the sun and the moon to stay in place for nearly an entire day during the battle at Gibeon while Joshua and the Israelites defeated the wicked Amorites. Again and again in this section, we see that the Lord is powerful. Ultimately, he's unstoppable. No force of nature, no will of man can stand in God's way. 
While many of these verses are references back to the Lord's conquest of old in the days of Moses and Joshua, several of them certainly seem to have eschatological significance as well. Just as one example, look down at verse 12 of Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk says, In indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations. While the Lord certainly trampled the nations who opposed Israel from the during the exodus from Egypt into Canaan, this verse almost certainly seems to foreshadow the battles surrounding the beginning and ending of the millennium where Jesus, nations rise against Jesus and he crushes them under his feet. He tramples the nations. Throughout all of history, beginning to end, the Lord is sovereign. He's omnipotent. No one can stand in his way. So Habakkuk, he's taken in these responses from the Lord. He's hearkened back to the Lord's dealings with his people in history. What is his response to the Lord's power? The Lord's power demonstrated throughout history. The response is to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. We see this in verses 16 through 19 as we close Habakkuk. As we saw in verse Chapter 3, verse 2, Habakkuk again records his fear in verse 16. Look down at Habakkuk 3, 16. He says, I heard my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Why was Habakkuk fearful? Why did he tremble? Habakkuk trembled knowing the Lord's plan and anticipating the day of the Chaldean invasion. Despite his fear with regards to the coming destruction, Habakkuk rejoiced and exulted in the Lord who would be his strength and who would be his salvation. We only see fear in verse 16, but let's read verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines... Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, Habakkuk saying, despite all the destruction that's coming to Judah, despite any trial the Lord puts me through and puts our people through, look at verse 18. Despite all these things, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. By a show of hands, how many of you are scared of heights? Anyone? Yeah, several of you. You're the kind of person who would wait in your car if your family went to the Grand Canyon and wanted to go look over the edge. You'd just sit that one out, quake at the thought of looking off the balcony of a two-story building. I typically don't mind heights, at least in moderation, my family could attest, but recently I was going ziplining, and I had a little too much time waiting in line to contemplate how thin the little glass barrier was between me and a 50-foot daunting drop, and how much windier it was than I had previously noticed, and ultimately how painful it would be if I fell to that bone-crushing demise. In that moment, my legs legitimately began to quiver. Again, my wife can attest. And I didn't have a ton of confidence in the operators of that zip line to keep me alive. While heights or any other number of things may cause us to have some degree of fear initially, we as believers have a reason for confidence despite our worries, despite our trials. While we may have some degree of fear, it should not be an immobilizing, petrifying fear. In the final verse of Habakkuk, the prophet says that the Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Have you ever seen those deer that are able to scale mountains, that are able to walk up and walk on, mountain, walk on a mountain and don't seem to lose their footing? It's kind of surprising. I didn't realize that was a thing. Many photographers have captured the beauty of these deer just standing confidently on the high places of a mountain. For us, we would have trouble standing so serenely on such treacherous, 
unstable ground, but the Lord has gifted these particular deer with the ability to masterfully climb such terrain. They're able to walk on these high places. In the same way, the Lord has strengthened believers to confidently walk through the difficult, scary, fearful times of life. He makes our feet like hinds feet. He strengthens us to walk on the high places, the difficult trials that he puts us through. My question for you is, do you rejoice in God despite the trials you go through? Habakkuk was so terrified of the destruction the Lord was going to bring on Judah that his lips were quivering and it literally says his insides were shaking. He was scared. These were Habakkuk's people, his neighbors, his family, and they were all soon to be exiled as slaves to a foreign country after a brutal attack. Yet despite this this intense, generations-long trial that lay ahead of Habakkuk and everyone that he loved, he said, yet, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk chose to worship the Lord and find his ultimate satisfaction in God. He chose to have faith in the Lord and trust God's providential hand. He knew from God's revelation that ultimately God was going to bring about justice and punish these wicked pagans. What did Habakkuk do? He chose to take the eternal perspective on the trials the Lord put him through. He had faith in the Lord. You and I must also choose to exult in our Lord when trials come. As we close, I would ask you to meditate tonight and this week on Habakkuk's prayers to God and God's responses to Habakkuk. Be in prayer like we studied in chapter one, that Christ's church would be free, that God's people would be free of any kind of immorality and any kind of strife and contention. Pray that God would purify his people. Pray that the Lord would have his kingdom come and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that his sovereign purposes would occur. Be in prayer that or rather trust that the Lord will purify genuine believers and that he's going to build his church no matter what. Bring to mind God's many deeds throughout history by studying and dwelling on his word. That's so key if you want to trust in him and have faith in him. Have a proper fear and respect for the Lord that motivates you to holiness. Through it all, my prayer for you is that you would rejoice in the Lord And ultimately that you would find your comfort, your exaltation, your strength in nothing but him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your sovereignty over all that occurs on this earth. Thank you that no matter how wicked the world around us seems and even all the wickedness we see in our own flesh, God, thank you that you're on your throne. Help us to fight sin with urgency. Help us to hate sin when we see it amongst pagans when we see it amongst professing believers, and God, most of all, please help us to hate sin when we see it in ourselves and to repent of it. Lord, help us to rejoice and exult in you. Help us to be satisfied with nothing less than knowing you and making you known. It's in your holy name we pray, amen.